earlier today, I gave a presentation on the, the purpose of business as seen through the lens of the great controversy theme. And instead of repeating that today, uh, this afternoon, I thought I would go on, and since there were some here who were here this morning, I would uh, give a second presentation titled, Ten Principles for a Flourishing Marketplace. Ten Principles for a Flourishing Marketplace. Let's have a word of prayer as we start. Eternal Father, this afternoon as we take a look at your scripture and what it has to say about you, open our hearts and our minds to receive you that what we do in the coming days will better reflect who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice what Psalm 119 165, one of my favorite verses. Great peace have those who love thy law. Nothing can make them stumble. You know the distinguishing characteristic of Psalm 119? You know what that is? Psalm 100. It has a whole bunch, a lot of verses. It's all about the law. Every, every verse mentions the law either explicitly or indirectly using one or more of the term, synonyms. Yeah, every verse, yeah. And this is such an interesting one from verse 165. Great peace. Now that word peace in the Hebrew is really the word shalom. Yeah. In ancient times, when uh, in the Hebrew community, when people in that community would pass each other or they would see each other for the first time in the morning, they're going out to the market, or they would greet each other with this word, shalom. Yeah. And then on Sabbath, or maybe Friday evening, as the Sabbath hours are coming, they would greet each other on their way home, and they would say, Shabbat, shalom. Have a happy Sabbath. We say happy Sabbath, right? Shalom. It's translated into English, the word peace. Unfortunately, I must say, because that word peace narrows the concept. It narrows it down to interpersonal harmony, social harmony, right? Inner peace, right? Actually, this word shalom means a lot of things, and we're going to explore some of that right now. Proverbs 3, verse 2. Uh, Proverbs is, a, is an interesting collection of wise sayings. And some of these uh, sayings seem to be just kind of popped in at random. And they cover a wide variety of life issues. But notice what it says in Proverbs 3, 2. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and abundant welfare... Will they give you? Hmm. Abundant welfare will they give you. Here's another passage that connects the idea of the, the Ten Commandments and shalom. And this idea of abundant welfare. Uh, William Barclay in one of his commentaries, said that the Hebrew law is the foundation of not only Jewish ethics, but also Christian ethics. It is true. It is central. I found it interesting when, uh, a couple of years ago, when I was uh, reading up on ethics and, and what scholars say are the foundation principles for the free market economy, I began to notice something. In, in their article on, uh, that, that covers this uh, topic, or at least addresses this topic in part, Quinn and Jones said that the fundamental principles uh, followed by business in efficient markets right, include honoring agreements, telling the truth, respecting the autonomy of others, and avoiding doing harm. This is the, the bare minimum you must have in order to have an efficient, free market. It's not to say that, that uh, everybody tells the truth all the time. No, of course not. We know that people tell lies. 
right? But in order for the market to work efficiently, this has to be there most of the time. And we have to have this kind of common understanding that if we're going to do business together in a market, we have to honor our agreements. If no one honored their agreements, what would happen to the market? Yeah, it'd be done. We'd be done. We'd be toast. And we'd go back to the Stone Age in terms of getting resources we need to have a flourishing life. Yeah. If nobody told the truth, end of market. Right? One day a, a lawyer came to Jesus and asked him a question. What is the great commandment in the law? The great commandment. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I've always found this last sentence interesting to me. First of all, because most preachers who mention this verse, they don't talk about this last sentence so much. You know, and it's like, okay, what we're not talking about, that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay, so I get the connection between the whole law, the Ten Commandments being a description of God's character, and the first of those commandments talking about our response to God a response to him from his, based on his redemptive action for us. And the last commandments, talking about our love of our neighbor. I get that part. What I didn't get was, why does Jesus mention the prophets? Hmm, the prophets. Well, when you start reading the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Amos, and some of these other prophets, Oh, then you start to realize, wow, the message of these prophets is really based upon the Ten Commandments. And these great commands, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. That's the two, these are the underpinnings or the foundation stones of what the prophets were saying to their people in their day when there was issues going on in their life. Yeah. Now, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. Here's one of those quotes. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6. Famous statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So Jesus is quoting from Moses in Deuteronomy here. He also quotes from Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the gospel, where it records Jesus' answer to that lawyer's question, all we get is the, is the phrase in red. We don't know whether Jesus quoted the entire verse or not, but at least the gospel writer remembers that part and records it for us. But what I find interesting is the first part of that verse from Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. So when someone does something to you as an enemy, you can still love your enemy by not taking vengeance on your enemy. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So one of the most difficult things we would ever be faced with, someone doing something very destructive to us, and our desire to take vengeance. Here's the application. You shall love your neighbor. Just don't do that horrible thing to your neighbor. Yeah. By not doing something evil, you are loving your neighbor. Um, I may come to this verse later, but now I'm, I'm thinking of it right now, so let me share this with you. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus, we find several uh, explanations for how the, the law of God would be applied into particular situations. Yeah. And we know that, that every family had responsibility for taking care of their own, what we'd say in business terms, their own assets. The things that they owned, 
that have potential for building wealth. It talks about this in Proverbs chapter 27. Watch over your flocks and herds. Take careful note of them because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of wealth, right? It could go away. So be responsible for your own assets, to speak in just generic business terms. But our responsibility for our assets doesn't end there because in a community where we are interdependent with each other, I also need to watch out for the wealth-building assets of other people in my community. Not that I'm fully responsible for making their wealth grow, but when their wealth is at risk, I have responsibility. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, I think it is, if you see your neighbor's uh, farm animal, ox, donkey, sheep, wandering away, what is your responsibility? Responsibility is to secure that asset, get it back to its owner. Yeah, yeah. You can't just take it home and say, honey, we're going to have mutton tonight. We're going we're gonna to eat like kings tonight for the next couple of days. Just don't say anything about it. No, 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 no. Can't do that. But in Exodus 23, Moses goes even farther. And here's the point to what Jesus was saying. He goes even farther. If you see your enemy's ox wandering away, who's what are you supposed to do about that? You secure that. You get it back to your enemy. Can you imagine the transformation power that could have on a community? If people follow that love principle, I've got an enemy here, they did something bad to me, and I don't, I'm angry towards them, but now I see their donkey coming along. It's got the brand on the side or whatever. I know it's their donkey. I cannot let that donkey just wander off. I will, I will love my enemy by securing that and returning it to my enemy. Can you imagine the transformation power that could have on a community in terms of just social harmony but even economic prosperity. If we watched out for each other's assets and protect, shared in the risk management of assets in the community and took responsibility to help. That's an amazing scriptural principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, the two great commands uh, are based on the, the foundation stones for the covenant our covenant relationship with God, and our covenant kind of relationship with other human beings. And as I mentioned, this, the prophets drew attention to these, these principles of covenant relationships when they gave their messages. Yeah, here's the uh, reference to um, going beyond explicit legal requirements. We've got to watch out for uh, the interests of others. The, the Ten Commandments is a set of uh, principles that draw us outside of our own interests and watching out for the interests of others. It provides a community perspective. In fact, there are some scholars who say the Ten Commandments really are primarily a communal document. We like to individualize the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. Okay, that's a message to me. I should not kill anybody as a person. I should not kill. Right? Oh, yes. And of course, we have to acknowledge there is an individual dimension. But many biblical scholars say it was intended for the community to say, here's a, here's a group of community principles to follow. And it doesn't ignore the individual responsibility, but it's a communal responsibility. The community perspective must be taken when evaluating the Ten Commandments. Even in Judaism today, we find that the community needs tend to take precedence over, but are not destructive of individual needs. It's this communal focus of the Ten Commandments that is often missed by Christians. When we take a look at the Ten Commandments there was a time in my life when I thought, well, this just, it just feels like a, a list of random things to do and don't do. You know, unrelated. 
don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your parents, and these are like a random things here. And it just, it felt very arbitrary. That, that's really one of the things that Satan, or Lucifer, was saying in heaven. God is arbitrary, coercive, right? Forcing your allegiance to him. He should re remove the boundaries so that we can live to our fullest potential. Is the Ten Commandments a random collection of arbitrary? I don't think so anymore. I believe the Ten Commandments uh, is an interrelated, purposeful means to experience what our hearts, what God created our hearts to truly desire. It's the collection that are interrelated to each other. The law in the Old Testament way of thinking is the means to experience it is the, uh, the thing that will transform our hearts as a community so that together we can experience this idea of shalom. I'm going to be saying more about shalom later this year at the national meeting. But let me just mention briefly here that shalom in the scripture is multidimensional. Multidimensional. Of course, it starts with our relationship with God. That is the foundation. No peace unless we have relationship with God. No shalom. Shalom also refers to social well-being. There are times in Scripture where shalom is used to describe and characterize the international relationships, international political relationships, physical well-being. And we could add a few others like safety. Shalom is discussed in terms of being safe. There's also an economic dimension. To shalom. Hmm. Economic well-being. We could say that shalom is a synonym for this idea of prosperity. Prosperity. In all dimensions. Not just economic to prosperity or wealth. But prosperity in every way. And the, the plan for Israel was that if they had this collection of principles to follow... As a community, following these principles, this will lead them not just to the promised land of Canaan, but to the promised experience of a full flourishing life, as God had intended. Actually, the giving of the law to Israel is like this, this great prophetic statement. Do we want to go back to Eden, to God's plan for us in Eden? It's by following his principles. He's going to take us back to Eden and re restore what had happened at, at, at Eden. And there are some scholars who talk about this, uh, the, the Israel coming out of Egypt as like the recreation or the creation event for them as a, as a group. That there is strong creation ideas here that is not completely separate from thinking about the Eden experience. Well, the purpose of the law of God is to help lead us to this experience of true prosperity, multidimensional thing that we call peace in English, but in ancient times was called shalom. This connection between shalom and the covenant relationship is recognized by Moses, by Ezekiel, by Isaiah, by Malachi, and of course David in the Psalm 119, verse 165. These prophets call this relationship a covenant of peace. Berith Shalom. That's how close they see these two ideas. Following God's character, experiencing flourishing life. They're wedded together. It's a covenant, a promise of experiencing a flourishing life. And these prophets foretell the time when God will make true, make, make that promise fulfilled. The connection between business and shalom, in my opinion, is only possible because the relationship between shalom and the moral religious principles of the Ten Commandments are followed by buyers and sellers in the marketplace. That's how we get community shalom, both buyers and sellers. Now, now be careful. <laughs> be careful because that includes everybody in the market, not just the companies that sell things. It includes the customers, too. That's you and me. The customers. 
Let's take a look at the prologue. Before each of the Ten Commandments is shared with the, with the nation, with the community, there is a prologue statement. This prologue is a call to fidelity to the covenant. I have redeemed you from the land of Egypt. Now, here's the journey we're going to be on together as a community towards full prosperity. I have delivered you from adversity and misery, which is the opposite of shalom. Some people think the opposite of peace is what? War. Yeah, not in the Bible. No, war can actually be used to restore shalom. Yeah. The opposite of, of uh, shalom or peace is misery. Yeah. And adversity in all dimensions. So God calls the people out of Egypt, delivers them from this adversity, then sets them on a journey towards full prosperity in all its dimensions. The Ten Commandments then become a promise of the blessings to come in all of life, not just the market, but definitely including the market. When we recognize the Lordship of God in the marketplace, we then start to understand our duty in the marketplace. We all hope to have a flourishing life. Who wouldn't want a bigger bank account among us, right? Or at least have more security as we think towards retirement. I'd like to have my retirement account a little bit bigger because who knows what's going to come in terms of health and disease and, and so forth. But the blessings of prosperity, first of all, not just economic, Second of all, primarily communal, but not to forget the individual dimension. These blessings of prosperity were intended to be experienced by the whole community, not just individuals in the community. So much that the people who are blessed, the community that is blessed, then becomes a blessing to other communities on a wider, even global scale. This is one step towards the fulfillment to God's, of God's promise to Abraham that he would become, or in his seed, he would become the blessing to the other families of the world, right? This was an important step in that process. Now let's go to the very first commandment. These are familiar words. You shall have no other gods before me. On its surface, it doesn't have much to say. It doesn't seem to have much to say about prosperity, full prosperity in all dimensions. And even less so, it doesn't seem to have much to say about economic prosperity by itself. But I think embedded deeply in this is something very important for economic prosperity. These ten principles of a flourishing life start at a very interesting place. You shall have no other standard of moral authority. This is the moral authority. You shall have no other gods before you. If you want a journey towards a flourishing life, there is only one standard. It is outside of us as a community. We don't make it up on our own. Okay? It was actually given by our Creator and our Redeemer. Ultimately, the contribution to Shalom by the commandments depends on the willingness of business leaders to be loyal to the one who gave these principles. So in many regards, this first commandment is just as Jesus said. This is the great command. This is the one that talks about loving God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. This is the one. You shall have no other gods before you. And if we want as business leaders to contribute to flourishing life in our communities, this is our starting place as well. The one to whom we pledge our allegiance of heart, mind, and action is none other than our Creator, our Redeemer, and the Covenant Maker, the one who fulfills promises and marketplace activities and achievements that we experience, if we let them, might easily come between us and our Creator. In fact, uh, Moses warned the people in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
be careful, he says, when you, when you build wealth, because it's likely you're going to forget the covenant maker who has helped you with this prosperity, help you develop. In fact, it is God who is the giver of prosperity, so be careful when you become wealthy. It could come between you and your relationship with God. That's Deuteronomy 8, verses about 11 or 10 up to about 20. The first command also highlights a very important reward, the highest reward we can ever hope to achieve, though not of our own efforts, is the reward of having a saving relationship with God. And the first command focuses on that. You shall have no other gods before. This is, the first command is a call to faith <laughs> and commitment. Choose prosperity then. If we want to achieve it and experience it, it comes when we choose the one who created and redeemed us. That this is our highest reward. Well, to summarize, prosperity is an all-encompassing idea in the scripture, not just monetary wealth. Yes, you can become wealthy, but it doesn't mean you're prosperous. You can have a big bank account, a wonderful life savings and retirement and investments. doesn't mean you're prosperous. And I think this first command warns us not to put ultimate confidence in our own marketplace abilities, our own productivity, our own career, and the market itself. You shall have no other gods before me. Take the second principle for a flourishing life. You shall not make any graven image and not bow down to them and so forth. Now again, on the surface, of course, as Christians, we all know that, that no Christians anywhere are bowing down to images. So this apparently doesn't even apply to us anymore. All right? We've long since solved this question, this issue of the ten, this, this second command. So we could easily remove it because... Yeah, we don't do images anymore, right? Uh, actually, there's something much deeper at stake here. And even though we don't have images and make images and sell images for people to use in false worship, there are still some important, deeper principles. Anytime a person takes a physical object and shapes it into something that can then be worshipped in a false religion sense, we're really saying that this creature, this human being, has power over the Creator. So you shall have no other gods before me. Furthermore, you should not place yourself above the Creator as the moral authority. Second of all, this command, I think, helps us realize, uh, even though we can have a wonderful understanding of God, His character, through the, uh, the Ten Commandments, through the great themes of Scripture, and through the revealed uh, life and work of Jesus Christ, there is still a limit to how much we know about God. There are still questions we don't have answered right now. The Scriptures that, that suggest this. God is transcendent from us. He cannot be completely defined or comprehended. Only in limited terms can we do this. And the second command kind of warns us don't put God into your own mental box and think that you've got him figured out by yourself. God is limitless, and yet we try to limit him into shapes, either physical images or, and this is going to come close to some homes here for Christians, how about theological images, things that we believe God is like or God is in our own ideas. We are tempted to, God, to put God in a marketplace box that attempts to control him and place us at an advantage. We think that it is God who makes us wealthy. Our wealth, our bank account must be evidence of that. Right? We just made a million dollar deal. That must be God's evidence that he likes us, he loves us. Be careful, the second commandment is saying, don't put God into that kind of a box. The second command is a, is a call to humility, in a way. It's also a statement that prosperity does not come by a process of magically praying to our own conception of God and expecting that he will respond by giving us wealth. A better understanding of God and having a heart of willingness to be a co-worker with him in the marketplace 
that will lead to true prosperity, but in its multidimensional sense. There's another aspect of the second command. Um, there's an economic piece to this. If we divert resources to making and selling objects of worship, okay, idols, if you will, we're, we're, devoting, we're diverting key resources that could be used elsewhere in our community for doing good things. Or to, since we have limited uh, resources available, we could have used that wood or stone for something else. There's an opportunity cost, if you will, for making idols and selling idols, and there's a whole cash flow that comes from making and selling idols that could have been used in other ways in our community to foster a uh, flourishing life. And so in, in an economic sense, idol making and selling really is a diversion, and it comes at an opportunity cost to prosperity. The third commandment also is related to economic and full prosperity. You shall not take the name of your God in vain. Now, we normally think this is referring to, excuse me, profanity, and I'm sorry, yeah, our use of language, sure, yeah. Don't use God's name in a profane, like swearing and, and so forth, yeah. And sure, that, that is a part of this. I think there's something deeper that is directly related to prosperity, though. You shall not take the name of your God in vain. Let's explore a little bit of what that is. Well, in ancient times, God's name was the, according to some scholars, was the holiest thing that could be, you could ever have. And so, if that is the most holy thing, then we better not say that word. Better not say God's word, uh, his name. And so they developed other uh, substitutes because they didn't want to say that holy word. This third commandment reminds us of our sacred duty, of course, to God. Now, there is no commandment that says don't tell a lie. Have you noticed this before, the Ten Commandments? There is none that says don't tell a lie. But embedded in a couple of these commands is this idea, tell the truth. And this is one of those. Any statement which deceives is forbidden by this command. And here's how this works. Uh, in ancient times, uh, it was, there was a practice called giving an oath or making an oath, making a promise to someone. Someone might say, well, as God lives, I will come to you tomorrow and I will deliver this new donkey to you or I will sell you this or I will do this for you in the market. Right? As God is my witness. Right? We're calling God to witness this, this covenant that we're making or this oath, this promise making. Right? third commandment is basically saying, be careful. <laughs> be careful about dragging God into your promises if you're not going to fulfill those promises. Yeah. In fact, the point is, be fulfilling of your promises. Don't take the name of your God into promise-making in vain, meaning, and by the way, the Scripture never says, don't make oaths. Okay. The point of most of these statements in Scripture about promise-making and oath-giving is be sure you follow through. Yeah. Can you see the, the connection to the marketplace with this third commandment? Be faithful in fulfilling your promises, your commitments. This is one of those principles that some scholars say is the bare minimum for an efficient free market. Following through on commitments. I read one uh, Bible scholar who said this third commandment is a, is a way of forbidding us to lift up God's name in order to further our own private or personal ambition. And to tell you the truth, I have heard some Christians in business say, well, God blessed us. God blessed our plans, our strategic commitments. It was God's doing. Oh, really? Seriously? You're going to call God as the author of your success, your business success? We're going to lift up God's name to further our own ambitions? Third command would say, be careful what you claim for God. Be careful. The primary 
application of the third commandment is, is in the promise-making. Promise-making and promise-keeping is fundamental to success in the market. It is fundamental to social harmony. It is fundamental to international peace. One could even argue it's fundamental to spiritual well-being in our relationship with God. Promise-making and promise-keeping. The third command, as some say, cautions us against parading our religious faith for others and invoking God as the author of our plans. Oh, I love the, this fourth one, the fourth principle of a flourishing life. Uh, a few minutes ago, I mentioned from Psalm 119, verse 165, Great shalom have they who love thy law, right? And I've suggested to you that this idea of shalom is multidimensional. First of all, it starts with our relationship with God. Social harmony, international peace, safety, physical health, emotional health, and economic well-being, and other dimensions as well. But those are the, those are the most dominant uh, ideas in Scripture. Of all of those dimensions of shalom, oh, and I forgot the economic piece. <laughs> Silly me. Uh, of all of those dimensions of shalom, you know, there's only one that has limitations on it. Let's review the dimensions of shalom again. Our relationship with God, so, uh, social harmony, international peace, uh, physical health, economic prosperity. Of those five, and safety, of those five or six, there's only one that has limitations put on it. Can you guess which one that might be? Let's, let's restate it. Would you like it, or would God like it, if we had stronger, more deeply committed, and experienced relationship with Him? Would that be a good thing? Would He want to constrain that? Probably not. If we had better physical health, would He want to constrain that and limit that? No, of course not. You can go back to the creation story and, and prove that. God's designed for us to have a, a wonderful physical health and well-being, right? International harmony, would God want to destroy that? Make, or put limits on that? Of course not. Uh, where am I going? Where am I going here? Physical health, social harmony. Oh, the economic piece. Hmm. This is the only dimension of shalom that has constraints put on it. To the tune of about 14.28%. Where did I get that number? One-seventh of our productive time we are giving up. There's an opportunity cost here. 14.28% opportunity cost. If you're going to put a value on the Sabbath, that's what it is. I don't do that, but I'm just saying. You know, if you want to put a value on it, 14.28% of our productive time, time spent on building wealth, is constrained. Yeah. By the way, there's another 10%. But that's a constraint on what we would call in accounting terms our retained earnings. Yeah. It's a constraint on our investments for the future. 10% tithe. Yeah. So we've got a, about a 14.28% constraint on our wealth building during the operations of a business or our, you know, our, our time building, adding money. 10% constraint on how we spend our money for future investments. Right? The economic piece. Oh, in addition, not just the weekly Sabbath. We have other Sabbaths. We've got the Jubilee uh, year. as all. That's a big constraint on the economic dimension of life, whoa, where there's all kinds of re resettling of accounts and, and helping those who are really poor to get their land back and big transitions going on there. Big constraint economically. But the weekly Sabbath, it's not just an economic constraint. I'm making it sound like a burden, and I don't mean to do that. Because in the Sabbath, we have in, in miniature form the entire covenant relationship in miniature, in the Sabbath. You know, I used to wonder growing up, why is it that the preachers keep saying that the Sabbath is the test of loyalty? It just seems such an arbitrary thing, right? 
I've now come to realize that the Sabbath is the, is the Ten Commandments in miniature. It's our relationship, the entire relationship with God in miniature form one day a week. That's why it's a loyalty thing. Because we're, our, our position with respect to Sabbath is our position with respect to our loyalty to our Creator and Redeemer. Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. So in the Sabbath command, we also have this other dimension of economics to work diligently. Yeah. Sometimes we don't, we don't talk about that so much as Christians. But you cannot separate the Sabbath from the rest of the week. These two are inseparable. God has a plan for... Uh, for us in our life as a covenant in a covenant relationship it is meant to be a covenant marketplace so that our work together also is under this covenant relationship six days you shall labor the sabbath is like a parable of salvation weekly basis in which god's creative deliverance every week results in a little taste of Shalom on a weekly basis. The Sabbath is prophetic. <laughs> prophetic of God's promises for the ultimate consummation of His plan of salvation as well. And His ultimate deliverance. That's what the Sabbath foretells. I was at Cambridge University a few years ago for a sabbatical and there, uh, had a chance to talk with their theologian who's the expert on Sabbath theology. Uh, and so I asked her, I said, well, I've been studying the covenant here during my sabbatical, and, uh, and in particular the Sabbath, and so tell me about what's the significance of the Sabbath? Oh, she said, my goodness, the Sabbath, it, it was the pinnacle of life in, in Hebrew times. The pinnacle of life was the weekly Sabbath. Everything led up to the Sabbath. Every, you always looking forward to the Sabbath. It was like a prophecy of the good things that God has promised us. It's like a, like a prophet, in a sense, foretelling. If we follow God Sunday through Friday, God will lead us to this promised fulfillment of flourishing life. And Sabbath is a continual reminder of that. And so it became the cornerstone of Hebrew life. Yeah. It's not just an arbitrary day. It is central, too. The Sabbath is the bridge be between a loving God and loving one's neighbor in the marketplace. It's a continuing positive influence in the market by helping us to remain loyal to God. And it's a safeguard against marketplace idolatry, making the market itself our idol. Now listen to me, what I just said here. I'll put it in a different phrase. Making our businesses our idols. The Sabbath is a continual constraint against that. Thinking that we can make secure our future, that by our own efforts we can become wealthy, by our own efforts we can do anything we want. The Sabbath is a safeguard against that kind of thinking. But how about taking Sabbath principles back to work with us on Sunday or Monday. We normally think of Sabbath as, okay, that's the seventh day. We're going to take that day off and worship. Okay, right. And then we go back to work. And then we take the Sabbath off. And then we go back to work. Okay, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the Sabbath is a miniature of our relationship with God in its totality, we can't leave it on the Sabbath day. It's got to come with us Sunday through Friday. Sabbath has to be experienced Sunday through Friday in principal form. When we prevent injustices or when we heal or correct injustices, we are in fact keeping Sabbath at work. When we help workers manage the toil dimension of work, the burdensome dimension of work, find ways to restructure how we do the work so it's less burdensome, we are in fact helping them keep Sabbath during the week, helping them prepare for the Sabbath day that comes at the end of the week. 
when we celebrate work. Six days you shall labor and do all they work. That's part of the Sabbath command. When we help workers celebrate the good things that they are doing for others. Isn't that also a way of keeping Sabbath? Sunday through Friday? There are some workers in every organization that have the most difficult tasks. We sometimes call it the grunt work, the dirty work, the, you know. These are, these are tasks that nobody else likes to do in the organization. Somebody's got to do it. Someone's got to be the janitor. Someone's got to clean out the, clean out the dirty drains or the water drains or whatever. Someone's got to do all that kind of work eventually. Otherwise, the work stops. <laughs> Someone has to do those kinds of tasks that are the demeaning, the most difficult. Keeping Sabbath at work. To keep Sabbath at work. We're going to protect those employees against the slights and insults of other workers. In fact, these workers that do the most demeaning, difficult work, they are being redemptive for the rest of us. They are doing stuff that nobody else wants to do. And that organization would eventually stop if that work wasn't done. They are re helping redeem the organization. We better protect them from, but they are often the first to be slighted and insulted. Yeah. This is, there's such a direct connection. I just, my spine tingles when I think about the direct connection between this and God's redemptive action for this earth. Doing the dirtiest work in the universe to redeem. We better protect those workers. I, I believe that is Sabbath keeping principles. Keeping before the workers a sense of joy. That there's a bigger purpose here in our organization. We're not just about making money. We're helping bringing joy to other people by what we make and sell. We're helping contribute to a flourishing life to other families, other persons, other organizations, and to help workers realize the significance of their work. That also. I've got to move on quickly to the fifth command. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land. Right. Now, growing up, I thought, okay, well, I've got to be obedient. That, if, I'm, if I'm obedient, I'm okay on this command, all right? <laughs> it goes a little deeper than that, i found. Every new generation grows up thinking that it knows better than its parents. And while young people do know a lot, what, what we all lacked at that age and what we still lack is the wisdom that comes from years of experience. We can honor our parents by submitting our own characters to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We're not only honoring our earthly parents, but our heavenly Father as well. In this fifth command, as one scholar pointed out, there's an important tension point. There's a reciprocal relationship implied. Yes, we're going to respect our elders, of course. That's where it starts. But respect has to be earned by the elders. And so there has to be a mutual respect of the young as well. We cannot enslave the young. This, this goes right to the heart of the great controversy and what Lucifer claimed about God, that he is a coercive, burdensome tyrant, right? We cannot be tyrants to our children and expect them to respect us and honor us. It is a, is a two-way respect. We have duties toward each other, and those duties are rarely one-sided. This fifth command focuses on this two-sided relationship. If you want to experience a flourishing marketplace, each has a duty to respect and honor the other, regardless of position. To be faithful to covenant principles, both parties will watch out for the other's interests. This is the interesting thing about this concept of shalom. The parents can never say, we are prosperous, unless the grandchildren, in scriptural thing, the grandchildren also experience that prosperity. And this fifth command is a, is a principle of covenant relationships help us focus on. How about do not kill? Because this is a simple one. 
I'm going to assume that everybody in this room has avoided this breaking this commandment. I don't know your histories, but more than likely, if you're in this room, you're not incarcerated, and so you probably have never killed anybody. Like other commands, this one is comprehensive in scope, though. There's something far deeper at work here. As Jesus suggested in the Sermon on the Mount, this command goes, goes pretty broad, right? Animosity, malice, hostility, retaliation, contempt, injury to another person. All of these are included in the scope of this command. Of course, since Christians don't kill anybody, we're, we're pretty good at masking the hidden elements of murder. Yeah. There is no hate so hateful as that experienced in the name of Christian love, as someone said. <laughs> Think about the, the flourishing marketplace and the economic dimension by itself when people break this command. There's a direct connection to economic prosperity. Absolutely. Community prosperity depends upon a stable, safe, civil society. And when that is broken, prosperity is destroyed. When persons fear for their lives, business activities, trading in the market, goes down. Fostering life promotes market prosperity. And even though this command is written in the negative, you shall not kill, there's an unspoken positive dimension. You shall foster flourishing life. That's the positive side to this. How about you shall not commit adultery? Another familiar one. Adultery brings the potential for reputation to be destroyed. Of course, adultery... You know, we always think, okay, that's the marriage relationship or pre-marriage or in, you know, individual persons here, but it's mainly related to marriage and, and sexual activity, right? Okay, that's fine, but it's not limited to that. Marriage in the Scripture is used to describe a lot of other covenantal relationships. And the scholars that I read regarding the Ten Commandments suggest that it's much, something much bigger here than just marriage being referred to. Marriage is not the only relationship that is covenantal in nature. The parent relationship with the child also is covenantal. It's just more implicit than explicit. Okay? Our work relationships are covenantal. Business relationships, covenantal. This commandment illustrates the sacredness of all relationships in a marketplace. And undermining relationships destroys prosperity. Well, here's another constraint on the economic dimension of Shalom. I forgot to mention this one. <laughs> I mentioned the Sabbath and, the, and these other Sabbaths and the year of Jubilee and so forth. The Eighth Command is another constraint on economic development, right? You shall not steal. By the way, I wish, I wish that in the Sermon on the Mount we'd had recorded what Jesus said about the Eighth Command, but it's silent. Nothing said about the Eighth Command in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm kind of disappointed in that, but being a business scholar. But on the other hand, maybe we should be able to figure this out. <laughs> on the surface, this command does talk about stealing. Okay, so stealing is an attack on another person's possession, but deeper than that, it's an attack on the dignity of the person who worked to gain those possessions. It's an attack on the commission that God gave us to work back in Genesis and it's an attack on God himself because he is the ultimate owner of everything. Every asset on earth he owns. And so the thief is disrespecting God. This command prohibits any act of deceit or treachery. Any interference by third parties in the family or what the family possesses. Back in ancient times, it was the family that was the business unit. Primary business unit. Family businesses. Stealing destroys the motivation to work and the fabric of human community. Stealing creates market instability. If there was open theft, unchecked, unconstrained, what would happen to the trading in the marketplace? <laughs> Down. And we would be in 
poverty, we would be, it would be very difficult to live a, even a subsistence life. Of course, this eighth command refers to some of the negative things. Don't steal, don't shoplift, don't extort, don't embezzle, don't offer bribes, don't evade your tax. Oh, tax season is coming up soon, by the way, <laughs> in a few days. Uh, don't use company resources for personal benefit without permission. Students don't like to hear this sometimes. Like the, the company's computer to surf the web at work. You're stealing from your employer. Yeah, your employer's paying you to be at work, and you're using the company machine to surf the web during work, you're, th you're stealing money from the employer. Don't misrepresent the truth about property, whether it's yours or your employer's. But there's a positive side to the command. Yeah. Work to counteract selfishness. Protect and preserve possessions. Counter covetousness by giving liberally. Cultivate contentment. That's in the eighth command, too. It's in the tenth command. It's in the fourth command. <laughs> this idea of contentment. Pay your debts. If you don't pay your debts, you're stealing. Pursue and conserve the truth. Yeah, about people's reputations. Yeah. Contribute your part to the growth of the community, flourishing of the community. You shall not bear false witness. Now, this is the closest one to don't tell lies, right? The, the main focus here is in the judicial system. Primary issue at stake, bringing false testimony against a fellow citizen in the justice system. It has broader implications, though. When we're silent, under certain circumstances, this can give the wrong impression. When we give a false report or twist or frame a report, spin the results, right? When we exaggerate or when we're careless. Well, the Ninth Command, I think, reveals to us that without an impartial justice system, the marketplace go down the tubes. Absolutely. The market would become corrupt, destructive, and initiative, diligence, and productivity would be destroyed. If someone can contribute to the justice system by being a witness, but then refuses to be a witness, undermines this stability. Now, I know that these days it's very difficult when uh, someone is accused of a crime, of maybe a violent crime, and a family member or a friend has seen this crime, they're afraid to say anything because they're afraid of retaliation, right? So this is a very difficult thing. Fortunately, in, in many communities, the justice system, the police, have uh, you know anonymous reporting mechanisms, telephone numbers. You can call not to give your name and so forth to give the police leads to go on and, and uh, that you will never be named as the source and so forth to protect the innocent. It's an attempt to preserve this important uh, justice system. We come to the last command, thou shalt not covet. Of course, the key for interpretation of all ten commandments is that these are broad, deep principles, not just specific list of things to do, but, but principles to guide our life in all respects. Part of our acceptance of God's promise of flourishing life is our commitment to work productivity, pr productively and to limit our own desires for more. This is another constraint on the economic dimension of shalom. Okay. Of course, the flip side of this command is encourage contentment. Yes, work hard, work diligently, but then be satisfied with what you do, what you earn. Be content with what you earn. Paul the Apostle uh, learned this in Philippians 4, I think it's verse 13. You have to read verse 11 and 12 and first, because then you get the whole idea. He's talking about his cash flow problems. He's got, he's got abundance and then he's got nothing, right? And he's these wide swings of cash flow, abundance and, and poverty. And I've learned to be content, he says. Yeah. It is only by living the Tenth Commandment that we can know true freedom. But by living this commandment, it is impossible unless we have a heart that is transformed. And so this command really points us back to this first command. 
of our commitment to God. How can we have this commitment only by a heart transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? When we spend our time thinking about actions that are out of alignment with God's plan for prosperity, we eventually find rationale to satisfy our own selfish desires. And this commandment is a call to put limits on our desires so that market prosperity is fostered. Again, I want to bring your attention back to the, this, uh, these Ten Commandments are not just individual. They are communal in focus. If I limit my personal desires, I will help foster the community prosperity. And as a community, if we limit our desires for more, we will help other communities in their prosperity. In these Ten Commandments, and especially this tenth one, we see a paradox. By limiting our own desires for prosperity, we increase our prosperity. How does this happen? Well, let's take it back to an ancient practice of farming grain. Controlling the consumption of grain this year, how much we eat from the harvest, provides seed for next year's crop. So if we constrain what we use, we'll have a, a larger sack of seed to spread next year. We can actually get more grain next year if we constrain our desires now. Delayed gratification is what we call that. Yeah. By limiting our desires for personal prosperity, we contribute more to the community prosperity. By limiting our desires for economic dimension of prosperity, we grow the reality of the other dimensions of shalom. This is God's plan for us. Now let me focus for a minute on the importance of the economic piece. I'm not at all saying that economics is un I'm not saying it's unimportant. Absolutely not. Without the economic dimension of prosperity included, an important reality of life is glossed over and ignored, and we might even say without the economic dimension present, it would be difficult to have physical health, social harmony, international harmony, right? And safety without a minimal amount, some basic economic stability. We would have to have that. As a set of principles that foster prosperity, these only work when prosperity is a community experience, not just an individual matter. It only works when we think about the impact of our actions on the whole community. It only works when the idea of prosperity is widened to include the full experience of shalom in all dimensions. Uh, I think it's clear from at least as I look at the Ten Commandments, as principles of a flourishing life, it's clear to me that the, the Ten Commandments never was intended to be a replacement for faith. In fact, they are a call to faith. <laughs> they are a call to faith. Faith is necessary. Commitment to God is necessary for each of these commandments. And as a community, these are necessary Keeping the Ten Commandments does not do away with the need for faith. They represent a standard of right and wrong, behavior far greater than we could achieve on our own power. The law we now realize when we see the, the depths of the Ten Commandments must be written in our hearts, and that writing can only be accomplished by God. Yes, human beings have a cooperative responsibility and a role to play as a community, of course, Without the grace and righteousness of Christ given to us, we would never rise to the level of per perfection demanded by, I hate that word demand, <laughs> envisioned by, <laughs> foreseen in the law. Well, how might the economic prosperity contribute to the full experience of these other dimensions? This verse in Deuteronomy I think helps us see, uh, at least implicitly, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant, which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Working hard, diligently, building wealth, we could say, as a community, God is fulfilling. God is the one who is 
giving us this power that he may confirm the principles of a flourishing life. That is, these are actually plausible, real, they're real principles that actually result in flourishing life. He's going to confirm his covenant in that way. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.